0: Hello and welcome to another Innovation Forum podcast. My name is Toby Webb and joining me in today's podcast is Rhett Butler, founder of Mongabay. Good morning to you in California, Rhett, how are you? I'm great, it's a pleasure to be here, thanks for having me. Well, nice to have you back with us. We've done some conferences together and you and I have been on a field trip together many years ago in Indonesia. For those who don't know about the great work of Mongabay, can you just give us a quick rundown of, of what you do?
1: Yeah, so we're an environmental news reporting platform. And so we produce content really looking at the intersection of people, nature, and wildlife. And I've uh, been doing it since the late 90s. Produce content in English, Spanish, Indonesian, Portuguese, and Hindi to really reach critical audiences in these markets, but also cover a lot of issues that don't get as much press in the West. Do we also do video and podcasts as well?
0: So, what sort of numbers and reach do you have? You're in quite a lot of countries and languages now, aren't you?
1: Yeah. So we're producing regular content, I believe in six languages, and we have staff in about 25 countries. And then we have this network of contributors. And this year is probably about 900 contributors in about 80 countries. And our monthly direct readership on our website is about 5 million right now. But our reach is actually greatly amplified because we're a nonprofit and we're not worried about ad revenue. So we give away our content for free. So it means anyone can republish it commercially or non-commercially. So beyond that, 5 million people are coming to our website. There's a lot more people who are reading it in other newspapers and and media outlets.
0: So we had a conversation before we turned on the tape about impact and how you measure it. And I think you said your grant and sort of foundation and individual funded. How do you demonstrate or know about impact?
1: Yeah. I mean, so there's, there's, there's a couple of ways that we look at impact. So one is very simple and it's based off, you know, quantitative data. So it's like readership, it's reach, it's social media activity around, around our articles, it's syndication. So that's all stuff that's pretty easy to measure that the more interesting stuff, which is harder to measure is the qualitative side. So it's like, what happens after we do this, after we do a story, that's a lot harder to collect. What we do is we leverage this same infrastructure we use for doing our reporting to also gather impact data. And so I guess a simple example of how to think about this is if someone does an investigation for us on an issue, we'll circle back with that journalist on say three, six, and 12 month intervals and say, you know, you did this reporting, can you go back to your sources and give us an update on what's happened? And so through that process, it services a lot of interesting information. Well, we don't take credit saying that Mangabe drove all this impact. We say that Mangabe did the reporting and then these things happened afterwards. So we may have contributed to that impact. So that could be things like law enforcement action. It could be policy change, like a, a company adopting a zero deforestation commitment or a government doing something. It could be you know, NGOs getting more funding or an idea that you know that we covered that gets replicated in other areas, things of that nature. And so we're looking for examples of that. Again, we're not taking credit for it, but we chose an association with our work. That tends to be the most exciting kind of impact that we gather from this process.
0: So there's been an explosion of interest in conservation, restoration, natural capital, environmental issues generally in the last few years. And we've seen lots of big announcements from guilty rich people and big foundations and so on about pouring money into environmental issues. What's been the impact of that so far? I'm guessing from some of the big announcements that's that's happened, it's taking time for that money to filter through. But do you feel like organisations like yours are, are really benefiting from that largesse?
1: We haven't seen a direct impact from this this most recent surge in funding. There's two things, there's like the money that was already kind of going into this space. And one of the things we're trying to understand is whether these new commitments represent an increase from that or whether it maintain the baseline. Um, and we actually have a new transparency initiative that we're going to be doing a reporting on this in coming months. But then there's also this new money coming in. And so we haven't really seen the new money. I mean, we're seeing the, the baseline levels for Mongo Bay itself. But I think in the sector as a whole, yeah, there's a lot more interest in nature-based solutions, as they're called, which include conservation. And so, there's been a lot of these commitments. Now, whether those are going to be followed through on the commitments is kind of something we're monitoring. What you said is the money has been a little bit slow to materialize. And I would totally agree with that. But I think there is positive momentum. And I think one of the things that's also interesting about this Mm -hmm. is the intersection of nature, but also human rights. And so looking at traditionally marginalized communities and putting more safeguards in place and opportunities for Indigenous local communities to be at the table, which is quite a big shift for this sector because conservation, which is in this space, traditionally has been much more top down. And so we've kind of seen this. Shift that started maybe mid-decade in the 2010s has really accelerated and has been amplified in this interest in in nature-based solutions
0: in the past couple of years. And do you see some of the donor money maturing in its approach in terms of solutions? I, I, what I love about Mangrove Bay is you, you really focus on solutions to some of these challenges. I read a great piece you guys did the other day about mangrove forests and swamps, for example. We're seeing nature-based solutions as a term get bandied around a lot. Are we getting better at understanding how to actually put that into action, do you think, rather than simply funding, in general, programs around the environment? Is it more targeted now than it was?
1: I think it's getting a lot better. So I think there's a few reasons for that. I think one is the data is better. And then there's also sort of like instant feedback, which I think helps. I mean, just to cite an example, there's been this huge interest in tree planting or ecosystem restoration. I I would say that it started with tree planting, and it's kind of evolved into ecosystem restoration. So in I was like 2017, 2018, some representatives of a very wealthy person approached me about good tree planting projects and my sense is is that the level of sophistication around making that decision was sort of like where can we plant the most trees of fastness So is it like eucalyptus trees on golf courses or you know, eucalyptus trees on savannah or whatever you know native savannah? I provided some input to them and the issues to consider. Then eventually, I mean, they also talked to a bunch of other people, so it wasn't just me, but, you know, eventually what they came out with was this plan, it was very thoughtful and considered and looked at where are the opportunities, but also what are the downsides from this and how do we fully like understand the full picture of what's going on? So again, it's become more nuanced, more than just about like how many trees can we plant wherever to what are the right kind of trees in the right places at the right time with respect to to local and indigenous rights and things like that. So it's, it's become much more nuanced. And I think it's really important for actually driving positive outcomes, but also sort of like reducing some of the downside of how these things might have been done 20 years ago.
0: So when you see a company talking about tree planting, does that raise alarm bells for you, unless you can find out exactly the detail of how that's working and what the sort of landscape arrangements are to keep those trees standing. Uh, You still see a lot of these announcements around by companies about tree planting. And I just wonder what your advice to them is about how they demonstrate they're doing it thoughtfully.
1: The first thing when I see one of those tree planting announcements, yeah, the first thing I do is try to understand like, oh, what are the details of this? And, you know, I understand why you lead with tree planting. It's because it's something that's tangible and people understand. And the average person is going to go like, oh, what kind of trees and where are they? But for someone who you know focuses on the sector, those are really important questions to ask. And there are certainly a lot of announcements that seem pretty superficial these days, but I would say on balance, they're getting better. And when you scratch the surface, there's more substance than you generally would have found, say, like five years ago. So I think the trend is positive. But that being said, there's still like plenty of dodgy tree planting projects that aren't really planting trees, or they're like double counting, or there's no additionality. So yeah. I mean, you have to do your due diligence. And on this front, one of the things that we've done at Manga Bay is create this platform for tracking tree planting projects. The problem is pretty simple. It just looks at what this public disclosures are. So we're not actually investigating every one of these projects. We're just saying what is disclosed about them. So do they have a shape file, which explains like where they're doing the tree planting? Are they using native species? Like, you know, what are their, what was the history of the land and things like that? It's basically like a decision support tool where if someone wants to do tree planting, they can kind of go through this process where they can say, okay, well, I want to support trees in the tropics that are native and where there's good disclosure around transparency or something like that. And so then they can go through the step process and then see which projects like meet that criteria. And then some projects are basically like black boxes. And so they wouldn't show up as well just because there isn't that disclosure in, with this tool.
0: And how seriously is the thinking around whether or not these trees are still going to be standing in 20 years? How seriously is that taken these days? Because that's what I always think when I see these schemes is, fine, you can plant these things. Maybe you forget about them. Maybe they're not monitored. Maybe the ecosystem around them isn't funded sufficiently to stop them being cut down. How on earth do we know they're going to be there in 20 years' time? Is that sort of length of time calculation being taken more seriously now?
1: Yeah, I mean, so 15 years ago, when you talk with forest carbon advocates, they would say, "Oh, that problem solved." You know, it's like we factor that in. But then I think that these forest fires that are destroying some of these carbon projects are showing that, oh wait, actually, maybe <laughs> we need to take this more seriously. And so, for these projects, there is there are standard calculations for trying to mitigate that risk. But I think the risk is actually a lot higher than people have come to realize and so you need those carbon offsets and you know, if they're being sold as offsets to be essentially permanent or at least going to last 30 or 100 years and I don't think anything's really guaranteed right now given the trends of climate change and the amount of fire that we're seeing across ecosystems from the tropics to, to boreal regions. I mean it's a huge question and potentially could undermine a lot of these carbon claims.
0: Let's talk about big business At Mongabay, you've covered how large companies are engaging suppliers and taking landscape and zero deforestation, no deforestation approaches for a long time. The landscape approach gets quite a lot of attention in our world. Do you see that as one of the principal solutions now? Are there some particular areas of the world where you see some successful approaches taking place that has large companies involved beyond, say, Carbon Offset or Red Plus projects?
1: in the early 2010s, there was a lot of enthusiasm in this space. It was really around corporate zero deforestation commitments. So it's looking at specific companies making these commitments to eliminate deforestation and other issues from the supply chains. So there are all these commitments that happen, but then implementation has been super slow. And so a lot of these zero deforestation commitments had a target of 2015. And I don't think any major company actually hit that target. And so now it's been pushed out further. That whole issue raised concern about are these straight zero-deforestation commitments actually viable? And so it kind of gave greater leverage and impetus for the landscape-based approaches. Now, in terms of where it's working, I would say it's still early stage. Like, it'd be hard for me to, like, pick a, this was a big example that's world-beating, but there are some interesting things going on, at, I guess, smaller levels. So there have been some pilots in Sabah, Malaysia, which are interesting through the GCF, so Governors Climate and Forest Initiative. There are some pilot projects, but it's still so early that I would be hesitant to say that it's successful or really anything else. We need some more time to really see how these things play out.
0: For a large company, is it the way forward in trying to implement zero deforestation targets, which of course have moved on to be melded with the STGs and melded with an idea of a just transition. And we now understand that human rights and development issues are just as important, if not more important, um, in these projects. Do you see the debate maturing there to include those areas in a way that you'd like to?
1: Yeah, I think the debate is definitely maturing and there's a lot more nuance in these discussions today. I think the landscape approach makes a lot of sense for companies. It's much easier to say, like, if we source from this jurisdiction, we know that everything's okay, rather than having to cut deals with a bunch of different independent suppliers and and figure that out. So if you try for plenty of purposes, landscape approach makes a lot of sense. We're not there yet. It's a model that could work really well. But again, the devil's in the details. The Lottie goals that have been put forth, are they actually going to be achieved? So that, that, I mean, that's always the question.
0: Absolutely. Well, what about Red Plus projects? is it a credible mechanism as far as you're concerned i mean there have been critics of red plus but equally some of the projects have been through some very expensive and long certification schemes and are now selling credits to airlines and others putting aside perhaps who should be buying credits and what they should be doing about their use of fossil fuels do you regard red plus projects and the concept of it as credible is it something you look at and think we need more of this
1: i think red Plus, conceptually, still has a lot of promise. I think, again, the challenge has been around the details. And then there's a whole controversy around offset, you know, the concept of offsetting. So I think that's a little bit aside from what you're asking here. But I think conceptually, in terms of having companies and governments fund conservation and, and restoration in tropical countries is an important mechanism for providing finance to achieve these climate and biodiversity goals. That's at a very high level, but when we actually see these projects, it's been really hard to get the projects right on the ground. But I think like one of the biggest things that has emerged out of the Red Plus movement has been this recognition of rights as being a central question that needs to be addressed in order for any Red project to move forward. In the early days of Mongabay, early 2000s, mid 2000s, there was much less talk about rights in conservation. Whereas RED really forced that question to happen, because it's like, if you're going to be tying carbon credits or payments for ecosystem services to land, you have to understand who uses the land, who owns the land, who occupies the land. And so it really bubbled this central question up in people's minds and kind of forced this reckoning with land tenure and these really complex issues. So RED ended up being a lot more complex than just like, People coming in and paying government to conserve a forest. I mean, you had to figure out all this other stuff. And so I think that kind of like blew up the whole sector and added just a lot of nuance that's been really important. And I think it kind of laid some of the groundwork for what's happened since the mid 2010s in terms of this research that's really dug into the outcomes of helping indigenous and local people secure land rights. The fact that those areas can have lower rates of deforestation or degradation than even officially protected areas. And then that kind of helped foster this recognition of if we want to achieve conservation outcomes, a key component of that is helping local people secure tenure rights. It's led to a lot more complexity in the space, but I think there's a lot of positive outcomes that have resulted from this whole process.
0: There's been a long discussion and lots of pilots around things like payments for ecosystem services And lots of mechanisms have been developed and as we know there are many small scale approaches around the world which seem to hold great promise in the business world the area that seems to hold some promise is this idea of insetting which it looks like the forest and land use guidance might be driving companies towards and of course insetting being as as i understand it trying to enhance land and capture carbon within your own corporate value chain rather than outside it. So in the supply chain, sequestering carbon. Is this an area that you focus much on? What are your thoughts on its potential? If the guidance pushes companies to do it, it seems like a really good idea to me. Although, of course, the implementation will be as difficult as anything else in this space. But what are your thoughts, Rhett?
1: Yeah, I mean, this is something we haven't done a lot of at Mongo Bay, but I think that Microsoft has been doing some really interesting work in this space around these various commitments to, to water, land, carbon. And so they're really trying to understand you know their footprint and then how they can more than mitigate the damage that they've done. They've been an interesting company to watch in this space. With insetting, it's going to raise a lot of questions is Is this company, like are we as a company best place to actually implement this? Our expertise is producing software or something like that, not necessarily managing land. And so I guess you're going to run into those questions of how do we actually do this in a way that's efficient and doesn't spook our investors or hurt our margins sort of thing. And so that's one of the challenges. I mean, if you're a company like Cargill or something like that, it's a lot different than a Microsoft or like an accounting firm.
0: If you're an agri firm... That has a huge amount of scope three in the supply chain it makes a lot of sense but it strikes me the kind of verification and monitoring of that is going to be incredibly challenging we've been hosting a lot of discussions on it who does the carbon belong to if a tribe or a farmer has the land well it's theirs what right does a company have to claim it in their own carbon accounting and there seems to be a lot of discussion around that at the moment and some clarity is apparently on its way quite soon What are your thoughts on deforestation hotspots and success stories? We've seen some data out of somewhere like Indonesia, for example, showing that deforestation has really slowed. And a cynic will say, well, that's because they ran out of easy forest to cut down. But on the other hand, some of the action that you and I have both seen over the last 10 or 15 years or so to prevent deforestation has focused a lot on Indonesia and surely has made a kind of impact. Do you think that's right? And secondly, where's next on the agenda? One hears Africa has the real risk uh, with population growth and so on. Of course, Brazil is always in the news, as are other parts of Latin America. Perhaps we talk about Indonesia first. Do you agree it's a success story or is that too trite a way of describing it?
1: The news is really interesting. I think it's too early to call it a success story. Indonesia implemented a bunch of reforms that should contribute to reducing deforestation in the early to mid-2010s. I think being in this space, you kind of want to see immediate results, and it felt like it was slow to see results, but so, the final question is, are, are those changes that were implemented then now, are we seeing the effects of that now? So we've seen this drop in deforestation, for I think it's been five or six consecutive years now which is really interesting, especially in the past couple of years, there's been a lot of macro factors. It seems like they would drive deforestation higher. And so like one of the questions is, are we just sort of in this lull before the deforestation spikes? Or is this like a trend that's going to continue? And one of the things that happens in Indonesia, I mean, really in Indonesia, whenever you have an El Nino and you have a drought there, you tend to see a big increase in deforestation. So a lot of that's driven by forest fires they just get out of control. And so we haven't had a strong El Nino since 2015, which was the last crazy high deforestation year in Indonesia. So since then, it's been, we've had, you know, three straight La Nino years, and there's been a greatly reduced drought risk and fire risk for the past few years. The real test is going to be when the next El Nino hits, or we going to see this massive spike in deforestation again. That said, I don't want to downplay the progress Indonesia has made, which is real and significant. So, you know, deforestation last year is like 90% lower than it was in 2015, 2016. That's very significant. And and because the Indonesian forests, there's there's so many peatlands and peat forests, that's a lot of carbon that's emissions that have been avoided. So as I mentioned earlier, there are some things that have happened the past couple of years that Could lead to more deforestation so this biofuels mandate where they created like a price floor and like by locking in a permanent source demand for palm oil for producing biofuels is quite concerning from an environmental standpoint the food estate law which could potentially you know open up huge areas of forest for energy and food crops is concerning i think we just have to see so it'd be too early to call a success story but it's definitely something that's worth watching very closely because it's quite interesting
0: when we look at those numbers that have declined for many of the complex reasons you've laid out, how much credit do you give some of the big companies that made these commitments? Do you think they made a significant difference? I think there's a lot of variance.
1: I think some companies are doing a better job than others. There are some companies that seem to be mostly greenwashing, and their commitments are questionable at best. And that said, I think we had to generalize for the sector as a whole. I would say the companies that have international exposure are generally doing a better job, a much better job than they were, say, a decade ago, because they made these commitments. They're trying to clean up their supply chains. Their supply chains are very complex. They've got a lot of suppliers, but they want to be industry leaders seen as doing best practice. And so they're cleaning things up. And then I think you have this other tier of companies, some of which may have links to the government, which kind of operate in a gray zone, and they're just not really exposed to international markets, international demand, and anything goes. But I think it's a a relatively small percentage of the market. And so I think it's like one of these 80-20 situations where you have 20% of companies doing 80% of the damage. I mean, it's probably, I don't know what the actual numbers are, but it's probably something like that, where it's a small minority of companies today that are driving the vast majority of damage in a place like Indonesia.
0: And I guess that the governance there is still as complex as ever. I mean, the last time I was there was three years ago when I got back, an Indonesian friend of mine who works in the space said to me that you can track which states in Sumatra are on fire you can track that back to how well governed they are and how well managed they are and whether or not the governor's in jail or so on i'm guessing with covid things haven't changed that much that local regional national governance is still key do you see appetite there to take these issues more seriously i guess from their point of view they'd say well on the one hand we're trying to meet your international expectations and on the other we've got to feed and clothe and have fuel for our people I just wonder if you get the sense that in Indonesia, particularly that attitudes are changing in the government side of things.
1: So I think a really interesting place to watch Indonesia is West Papua. So West Papua is in Indonesian New Guinea, so the Indonesian half of New Guinea. There you see this conflict playing out between the different levels of government. So the local government has been cracking down on palm oil companies that don't have the proper permits, whereas the central government has a different view on this. And so you see this conflict between, so when you say the government, there's a lot of different governments in Indonesia. And so you have decentralization. So you have, you have the municipalities, you have the provincial level, and then you have the federal central government. And so the central government often has views that are quite different than the municipal level or the provincial level. So again, in West Papua, which is one of the next frontiers for deforestation in Indonesia because it still has a lot of forest cover, The plantation boosters and logging companies see it as, okay, this is the last great bonanza for, for Indonesia in terms of resource exploitation. Conservation people say, well, this is the most biodiverse part of Indonesia that's left and the most intact forests. So it's a critical priority. And so you're seeing this battle play out over, are we going to do a whole bunch of new oil palm plantations here or timber plantations? And local government may say, okay, well, we've committed to ourselves being a conservation province. So we're going to try to monetize our ecosystem services in a new way and provide livelihoods that are sustainable for local people, which is at odds with sort of like these top level goals of say, like palm oil production or timber production. It's a very complex situation. So it's hard to sort of speak in generalities about how the government feels about something. It ends up being like which government and what level of government and where are we talking in Indonesia?
0: Yeah, that was certainly the impression I got last time I was in Sumatra about three years ago. It very much depends on on the regional level you cover areas beyond indonesia of course africa latin america latin america gets a huge amount of attention particularly around beef there's lots of campaigns running at the moment against jbs and, and others around beef but let's talk about africa for a minute you know everyone always talks about it as the next hot spot you know population is exploding but it's an area i think we generally know less about what's going on for various reasons how is Mongabay's bay's coverage expanding of africa and Are there any some good news stories out there? I mean, there are countries like Gabon and so on that had made steps forward in recent years. But I wondered, what are your thoughts on trends in that part of the world?
1: Africa is really interesting from a forest standpoint, because it still has a huge amount of forest cover. There have been discoveries recently that that forest stores a lot more carbon than was originally thought because of these peatlands and whatnot. That said, the, the trend in Congo Basin has been rising deforestation. Unlike Asia and and Latin America, a much higher percentage of that deforestation is driven by subsistence farming and smallholders. So it's more of people trying to feed themselves and their families or supply local markets than feed the international market. Being politically more stable than it was, I mean, like DRC becoming more politically stable than it was, say, you know, 20 years ago, there's more investment going into the country. And so that opens up the possibility that you're going to have a lot more industrial quote unquote development, which, you know, it's mining large scale industrial agriculture, more logging, things of that nature. And so that could really ramp up deforestation for commodity production at the same time that you still have a lot of clearing for subsistence agriculture. Africa is seen as, I mean, especially Congo Basin is seen as being kind of like the next frontier for deforestation and there are different pathways that, you know, that can be pursued. And so Gabon has championed itself as having a conservation focus to its development. Gabon has traditionally relied on oil and and gas that pays for everything. and There hasn't been a lot of conversion of forests for industrial agriculture. You know, that's starting to change as the country has sought to diversify its revenue. So far, it hasn't unleashed a huge amount of deforestation. Countries like Norway are putting money into Gabon as, I think, almost like an experiment to see, can Gabon transition to a more diversified economy without cutting down its forests? And in terms of like tech, like monitoring tech and things like that, Gabon's been a laboratory for doing a lot of that work. So I think that's also pretty exciting. Africa is really going to be critical in terms of conserving tropical forests. The Congo Basin is the second biggest tropical forest in the world after the Amazon
0: you mentioned technology it's something you come across a lot i know in your coverage conservation technology and we've seen this explosion of offerings around satellite and there's lidar and all sorts of different drones all sorts of different technologies are you optimistic about use of technology to enhance conservation and perhaps even get to the mythical restoration that we so desperately need or is the danger that we just are incredibly well informed about things we can't stop because we can watch it live but we can't do anything about it that institutional challenge is the hardest bit, right? Enforcement on the ground, government incentives, et cetera. What do you think when you see the latest news about conservation and technology?
1: I like to say that we no longer have ignorance as the excuse for not taking action. That's certainly the case today because with satellites, we're able to see what's happening in in near real time with forests and other ecosystems. We still don't necessarily understand what's happening in the forest. We can see what's happening to the forest cover. But I'm very optimistic that we can at least see what's happening. And the picture is getting better. So the resolution is getting better. So that's both in terms of satellites, but then also digging more deeply into what's happening within that forest. For example, bioacoustics are a way to actually start to monitor the health of communities and species within an ecosystem. Understanding there's hunting going on or the effects of climate change or comparing different conservation interventions is much more possible with bioacoustic approaches and these in-forest monitoring. And so we're looking out 10, 20 years You can potentially have a forest that you have bioacoustics listening for biodiversity data and, and tracking trends over time, but also enabling real time interdictions, you hear a gunshot or a chainsaw someone can do something, environmental DNA is like the next big thing. So understanding what species are present by collecting little fragments of DNA that are in the ecosystem, network camera traps. So camera traps are more spatially limited, but all those things plus satellite data provides this much better picture of what's happening to both quality of habitat, but then also the species within that habitat. But that said, it all depends on political will. And so if we don't have political will to take action, At least we know what we're losing, but it's not going to stop us from losing things. But I think like, if we wanted to have a case study for this, Brazil's a really good one. In 2004, the government implemented this program and a key part of that program was having this near real-time satellite monitoring. And so between 2004 and 2012, the average annual deforestation rate fell by about 80% in Brazil. And so there was some analysis after that that concluded the majority of that drop in deforestation can be attributed to this satellite monitoring system and the fact that there was follow-up. So you could see where deforestation was happening, but then also have law enforcement and positive incentives to change behavior. Under the current administration, we still see what's happening with forests, but the second part of that is gone. And so deforestation has been increasing because, yeah, we see where it's happening, but no one's doing anything. And there are no incentives to not chop down the forest because it's been removed or just expired.
0: Yeah, that's the big challenge, isn't it? I remember those days when you'd see footage of, I think it was Obama, they were called the Brazilian authorities, descending on loggers and ranchers and so on, and actually showing evidence of enforcement on the ground. It's Very difficult for companies to play much role there, but of course they can work with others and with donors and governments to create the incentives to make that happen. I guess what we're saying is that's still the big challenge, isn't it? How do you incentivize people to keep these forests standing and to enforce it from a government point of view? Do you see much progress happen there?
1: So I think it's interesting, like what the EU is doing with deforestation imports. And so they're moving beyond legality. So they're saying deforestation generally, not illegal deforestation. And so I think if that ends up moving forward... It's going to create this market for monitoring technologies and services and other things that will then drive down the price of those things and create a lot more incentives for understanding your supply chains. I think that that will end up being a really important driver of change in the space. But that being said, like you, I've looked at this space, and there's some interesting pilots, it tends to be hard to understand what goes to scale and what works. And I think one of the problems is that conservation tends not to report on failure. I mean, I think it's a problem with a lot of sectors, but conservation, particularly we've seen it. And so you don't actually understand why something didn't work or, you know, like where it failed, or like, if there's something you would have changed, it would have made a difference. It can be frustrating to get into this space. You see these, you know, press release from like five years ago. Like what happened with that? I and mean, then you follow through on it, and just kind of leads to a dead end. It's hard to assess these things and draw conclusions because there's just so many pilots. You don't know what happened to them.
0: Is that an opportunity for Mongo to start tracking some of these and looking into the reasons why? Because just like you, I think, oh, I remember that initiative. What happened to it? And there's a four-year-old press release and you don't know what happened and everybody left that organization or moved on and you just can't find out what happened. Of course, then, you know, nothing really happened because otherwise maybe we'd know about it. Is there a role there for the conservation movement to do a bit more self-analysis, a role there for Bay, perhaps?
1: Yeah. So we've been trying to do some of that. I would say, you know, we're very small and (laughs) very nascent, but we piloted this a few years ago with this conservation effectiveness project, which is looking at the effectiveness of different conservation interventions. Like what are the outcomes from it? And so we teamed with some scientists, so it was like journalists working with scientists to try to figure out like what the data, what does the data actually show. So I think that, that was impactful and very useful for us as a way to address this. And then a spin-off of that was this reforestation project where we're looking at tree planting initiatives around the world and trying to create more transparency. The infrastructure we built for that, we then want to apply to other areas. So, for example, like looking at the conservation philanthropy that you know we talked about earlier today, trying to see like, is there follow through on these commitments? As we sort of build that out, then we could take that platform and the infrastructure and then apply it to other areas. I mean, obviously, this is a big space. We are interested in Monga being able to provide a role in it and how we do our work. I mean, we're not gonna answer all the questions, but we do have expertise and, and infrastructure that can support and improve transparency and accountability in the space
0: listeners there's a reason to donate to Mongo bay which you should do immediately and support the great work that Rhett and his colleagues do in often very dangerous circumstances around the world we've all seen the numbers on how dangerous it can be to be an environmental reporter particularly on the ground Rhett, thank you so much for your time today on the podcast and listeners do check out Mongo bay donate if you can support their work and Rhett, thanks so much for the insights
1: Well thanks for having me it's a pleasure to be here